We are in the book of Exodus. This is great. Starting in verse 1. Exodus 1, verse 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your spirit to be our teacher, our guide this morning as we enter into this second book in the Bible. This second wonderful work in the library that you've given us to draw us to you, to deepen and develop and grow our relationships with you and each other. And Father, we open your word with expectation that you will teach us. And expectation that we will understand these things because that's why you wrote them down. We have expectation, Father of Revelation, in in your word. And of understanding the path that you have laid out for us in our lives. And our own exodus from this world to the next. Father, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word and the study of your word this morning. Bring things to mind. Share things with us, Lord. Not just by my words, but but among us, Father, as as people gain insights, uh, speak to each of us, Father, and let us hear from you this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Exodus doesn't begin. It continues. It's a sequel that assumes you know what the story is so far. So if you haven't studied Genesis, hopefully soon we'll have CDs available and you can study through. Or you can just go back and read it for yourself. That's a possibility as well. But Exodus just starts, it's like a horse out of the gate. As a matter of fact, you see that first word there, now. You could just as well use the word and, because neither word is actually even in the original text. It just starts right off. These are the names of the sons of Israel. And except for the fact that we all have the title Exodus in our Bibles, you wouldn't even know this was another book. It picks up exactly where Genesis leaves off. Except for one thing. It is a new book because in it God is about to do a new thing. He's going to do something he has not done before since the creation of man. He's going to step out into a new arena, a new area, and Exodus will illuminate that for us. Now, the actual Hebrew name for the book of Exodus is, which is like this in a lot of books in the Bible, it's the first sentence of the book. These are the names. That's that's the Jewish name of the book of Exodus. These are the names. Or sometimes called the book of names. And it's a clue. It's a clue to what this book is about, to what this new move is that God is about to make. Remember the old book, Genesis, that started out so well and ended so poorly, at least on man's part. Beginning with, as we said last week, the glory of God and ending in the grave of man. We moved from creation to the coffin. It started out in Eden and we ended up in Egypt. Not a pretty ending to the book, but God is about to reach his outstretched arm into Egypt and do something that would be unbelievable to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, and even to many of the Israelites. Now there are three words I want you to jot down. If you take notes, I encourage you to do so. And follow along as we introduce the book of Exodus this morning. Coming Wednesday night, we're going to hit chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to start going through. This morning is an intro to get us into the book, to help us to understand where it's going and where we're being led in this thing. Three words to jot down that will be our outline to follow today. A plan, a person, and a people. 
a plan, a person, and a people in the book of Exodus. Now the first and the third, the plan and the people, are the major themes of the book. The plan and the people, we'll see that in a moment. The second, that is the person, is the major player in the book of Exodus. So let's get right into it. The plan. The plan is the redemption of God's people. The redemption of God's people. The whole entire first half of the book is dedicated to this truth. To the redemption of God's people. To bringing them out. To buying them back. To getting them back where God wanted them to be in the first place. Exodus 1 through 18 tells the story. Now back in Genesis chapter 50 verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely take care of, that is, visit. God will surely visit you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Joseph, in essence, is saying God's going to redeem you. He's going to pull you out of here. He will come to you and he will get you out. He's going to bring you back. And this very prophecy of Joseph indicates that it would take an act of God to get the people out of Egypt. There's an assumption here Joseph makes. You're in Egypt right now. And you might think when Joseph said this, if you were one of the sons of Israel, you might have said, well, why, why does God have to visit us? We'll just go back when we're ready to go back. But Joseph understood something. They would not be able to go back when they wanted to go back. And so there they would be, trapped, stuck, slaves in Egypt, unable to leave the land, unable to go back to where they came from, back to the promised land. But Joseph says, hey, but don't worry about it. God is going to visit you. How could he have known? How could Joseph have understood this? Remember, at the time of Joseph's death, everything was hunky-dory. They were like Joseph. He welcomed his family. They were living in Goshen, the best of the land. Things were great for the children of Israel. Everything was working out just fine. And yet Joseph still says, hey, God's going to visit you and he's going to take you back to the land. How could he have known that his people needed to be brought back by God? Well, it's a rhetorical question because God knew that man, what man has proven time and time again. God understood, understood then and understands now we need bringing back. We need bringing back. We need redemption. We need to be pulled out of the place where we get ourselves. Back to the place where God wants us, that place of promise. But even more than being brought back, redemption implies being bought back. And from Genesis to Jesus, God's heart for his people has always been redemption. You may not know that this morning. You may not realize that. A lot of people wander around the earth saying, what does God want with me? Or if there even is a God, what does he want with me? I see pain, I see heartache, I see struggle all around me. What does God want from me? And they don't even realize that all the while God is saying, I want to buy you back. I want to bring you back to the land of promise. I want to gather you in, as we said last week, under my wings, like a mother hen. I love you. I want to redeem you. You know, if you could listen to the heartbeat of God with a stethoscope, I'm sure you would hear this over and over. Redemption. 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 Because that's the heartbeat of God. That's what He wants for us. For each one of us. Every one of us. Oh, not me. I'm, I'm too messed up in my life. I have too much darkness in my life. God doesn't know. Redemption. He wants to buy you back. Wherever you are, even if you're in Egypt. Even if you're enslaved to the things of this world. And listen, folks. God does not flip-flop. With steely-eyed consistency, God has been working out His plan of redemption from day one. 
from day one. A lot of folks will read the Bible and they'll say, oh, well, first he went and he did the Israel thing and that didn't work out so well. So he went back to the drawing board. There was no going back to the drawing board. The drawing board was set before we were created. Before all things happened, God had a plan that he laid in place and has been working out the whole time. And that plan is redemption. That's it. That's the deal. And he brought redemption to perfection in his son Jesus. Luke chapter 1 verse 68. In Luke 1 68, we see the story of John the Baptist and his dad, Zacharias, was a man who was a, a, a priest, a believer, a very strong believer in God. But when he heard that his wife was going to have the son and the whole thing, he just didn't believe. And so God said, well, if you're not going to believe, you're not going to speak. And he closed his mouth. And during the entire pregnancy of Elizabeth, Zacharias was not able to speak. Which I love. I sometimes wish God would do that today. Shut the mouths of those of us who are speaking when we shouldn't be speaking. Close our mouths unless we're going to speak His words. Well, in Luke 1.68, Zacharias, after John is born, shows this great belief. And he just bursts out with a prophecy. Listen to what he says. Just the first line, he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us. And accomplished redemption for his people. What was it that Joseph said? God will visit you. And he will bring you back. And now Zacharias later saying, God has visited us and will accomplish redemption for his people. Thirty years later, after Zacharias gave that prophecy, Jesus came on the scene and blew the minds of the hometown crowd in the synagogue in Nazareth one Saturday morning. Luke chapter 4 verse 16 tells us, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet of Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Now understand, you need to know this about Jewish synagogue, the readings in the synagogue were lined out. I mean, they were laid out through an entire year, I believe. Isn't that frank? That through the year, each Sabbath of the year, there's a particular reading from the, from the book, from the Bible. And on this one morning, Jesus opens up to the reading of that day. And this is what he reads from Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. I love this scene. This is so intense. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all the Jews sitting there went, Excuse me? I beg your pardon? What did he say? Today? What, how, what are you talking about? God did indeed visit us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus, quoting Isaiah 61, claims fulfillment of this prophecy for himself. And you need to understand about Jesus, he doesn't leave us any options as to what we believe about him. People walk around and say, Oh, he's a great teacher. He doesn't leave us that option. Oh, he was just a really good man. He doesn't leave us that option. He was either God or he was not. That's the only option with Jesus. He was either God in the flesh, visiting us on earth, as was prophesied, or he isn't. But nothing in between. And so many people walk the earth and say, Oh, Jesus, what a great... Yeah, Jesus, my main man, he's a great teacher. I love reading the teachings. Like Thomas Jefferson, then they get to the end of the gospel and they cut off the resurrection. That, that's a little too much. But yeah, really nice fellow. He wasn't. He was God. He wasn't just a nice guy. God is not a nice guy. 
Don't get me wrong. Well, I think God's nice. He's been nice to me. That's not what I'm saying. God is much greater, much bigger, much more phenomenal than nice as Pharaoh is going to discover in the book of Exodus. But with God, we're talking about redemption. And you need to see that and know that. That word is a buzzword, especially the first half of Exodus. Redemption. Redemption. It's what the book is about. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Peter says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We're going to see a lamb in Exodus, a precursor of Christ. A picture, if you will, of Jesus. And you may say, what does all this redemption stuff have to do with the book of Exodus? I want you to hear this. The entire book of Exodus is a stunning portrait of redemption. And why is that important to know? This people in bondage, this visitation of God, a lamb slain, a great redemption to a place of promise, that's the picture we get in the book. Now it's different than Genesis. Because in Genesis we saw pictures and types of Jesus throughout the book. Probably the most famous one is Abraham and Isaac up on Mount Moriah. As Abraham goes up, called by God to sacrifice his son. Which another father would sacrifice his son, as you may recall, on that precise place, Calvary, at the top of Mount Moriah. Many believe, and I agree, that it was right where the cross was plunged into the ground. Same spot. A picture, a type of Jesus. There are many pictures and types of Jesus throughout Genesis. The book of Exodus, the entire book is a picture of Jesus. The whole thing is one massive drawing, one massive artwork of God, one painting sprawled across God's canvas of history with the, with the Israelites that shows us the redemptive work of God through Jesus. The entire book is a type. Why? Why would God do that? Because he doesn't want anybody to miss out on redemption. He doesn't want anybody to be lost. It's God's heart, God's will, God's desire that every single person be saved. Does that mean everybody will be saved? Tragically, no. But that's God's desire. Promise man's desire enters the picture as well. The plan. The first major theme of the book of Exodus is redemption. Now before we get to the people, there's a person. There's a person who is key to the drama of Exodus. And the second thing you notice, a person. And the person is our recognition of Israel's greatest prophet. Look at Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2 as we have a recognition of Israel's greatest prophet. Verse 1. Now a man went from the house of Levi... And he went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Why was she hiding him? Well, you'll find out that Pharaoh was after the kids. Pharaoh wanted the firstborn male children. Every son, in verse 22, born to you are supposed to be cast into the Nile. Every daughter, you can let them live. And so this woman of Levi and her husband, they hide this child for three months. Verse 3 but when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. And then she put a child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. This is where it gets a little different from Cecil B. DeMille's account. 
Verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the child went and called the, the so the, the girl went, the daughter went and called the child's mother. This is great. So Moses' own mother raises him. But protected by Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 9, Then Pharaoh's daughter said, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the amazing thing here is that not only now is her child protected, but she's getting paid to take care of her own child. By Pharaoh. This is how God works. Now where are we? Verse 10. So the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him, she named him Moses. And said, because I drew him out of the water. And gang, the people of Israel had never seen a man like Moses before. They were about to be absolutely blown away by this prophet, this amazing prophet. And you too will be amazed by Moses. Charlton Heston does not do him justice. Steven Spielberg, they missed the mark. That's not Moses. The Moses of Scripture is a wild, amazing man. One of the few people in all of history who was able to change God's mind. Who can do that? There will be a scene coming up, you'll see it happen, where God is ready to crush Israel. He's done. He's had it. And Moses says, hey, why don't we just have what, just one more chance? And God goes, okay, Moses, I'll, I'll, okay, for your sake. Wow. This prophet is amazing. Same guy who parted the Red Sea, by the way. You know, now we all know that God did that, but Moses was alone with the staff and the sea and everybody going, whoa! Amazing. Same guy who went right face to face with Pharaoh. Again, the greatest monarch of, of his day went before Pharaoh and said, hey, I want the people. Let them go. The same man who took these 70, actually it was much more than that, they started out 70, 400 years ago. 400 years before the Exodus, 70 people came into Egypt. Some estimates are 6 million left Egypt. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And this guy is an amazing, amazing leader. And you will get to know him well. I was thinking about this. Abraham got 12 and a half chapters in Genesis. Isaac got a few chapters, not many. Jacob got 12 and Joseph got 13. Moses gets four books. The rest, the next four books, Moses is our guy. He's the main man in there. He's the writer, so I guess he has the right. But we'll see in Moses an amazing man of faith. Flip in your Bibles real quick. Let's read Hebrews chapter 11. For the Hebrew writer has some insight to Moses. Something to see here. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. Hebrews eleven twenty-three over there in the New Testament. All the way over. My Bible is page 1226. And that's not very helpful. But you're welcome. Hebrews 11.23. I'll go ahead and start reading. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Because they saw he was a beautiful child. We just read that. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now listen to this. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What did Moses know about Christ? He obviously knew something about God's Messiah. 
and saw God's Messiah, God's plan, God's Christ as more important even than being one of the higher-ups in Egypt. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he would not be, so he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. And by faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Moses. This amazing, incredible, this great prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 10 tells us, Since that time no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants, and all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. There was never known a prophet like Moses, the writer of Deuteronomy says. Moses' life was lived out in three 40-year segments. You'll see this play out across four books. Three 40-year segments. He was raised in Egypt. And then at 40, he fled and became a shepherd in Midian, where he would spend 40 years of his life a shepherd. Well, I would have thought that, you know, being raised in the palace of Pharaoh would prepare him to be a great leader. Not in the eyes of God. In the eyes of God, a great leader is a shepherd. And so first he's in Pharaoh's palace 40 years. Then he's 40 years learning how to truly lead God's way as a shepherd. And then finally, the third section of his life at age 80, for those of you who are at or around age 80, that was when God called him to lead his people out of Egypt and back into the promised land. That was the point that God said, okay, you're ready. We have a little upside down in our world. We think we hit readiness like around 35, 40 years old. We think that's, that's where you really get ready. You've got to get it done because by the time you're 80, that's when you've got to be sitting back and you know, drinking tea and not doing a whole lot. God says, no. So my man Moses wasn't ready until he was 80. But you know what's amazing about Moses in the promised land? Moses, for all his greatness, does not get there with the people. He will not go in. We will watch Moses die, be buried by God himself. Another amazing thing to know. God takes Moses out and buries him. But he does not enter the promised land. Oh, he's Israel's great prophet, but we need to understand this important truth. And it's your second point, the person. We need to recognize Israel's greatest prophet is not Moses. Israel's greatest prophet is indeed Jesus. For you see, Moses, for all his greatness as a leader of the people of Israel, was never able to give them what they needed most, which is your first point, redemption. Moses could lead them, but Moses could not redeem them. There is something I'll I'll give you a little heads up about. I think it's very cool. Moses will, however, see Israel's greatest prophet face to face. Moses does make it into the promised land. Well, Rick, well, I thought you said he died and was buried before they got to the promised land. Yes, that's true. But Matthew chapter 17 tells us an amazing story. That Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John and heads up a mountain. And as he heads up, he says, stay here, I'm going to go up and pray. He goes further up from them and then suddenly before their very eyes, they see Jesus in the glory that he had set aside. He was transfigured, the Bible says. His clothing became white as wool. His face was shining. They could hardly even look at him. And then in that moment, in that amazing moment, they see standing there with him in the promised land, Moses. 
and Elijah. You see, God got him in. <laughs> he made it. He ends up in the promised land later on. And as Peter and James and, and, and John are sitting there looking, Moses and, and Jesus and Elijah, and these are the two greatest prophets of all Israel, standing with the greatest prophet of all Israel. And as these three, three men look up at their Adam, and Peter does what Peter does so well, Oh Lord, it's good that we should be here. This is great, guys. Well, let's set up some, uh, some tabernacles. What he's thinking is places of worship. Let's set up some tents here. One for Elijah, one for Moses, and of course one for you, Lord. And boom, out of heaven, the voice of God rings out and God says, Hey, this is my son. Listen to him. Not Moses. Not Elijah. This is my son, Jesus, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased, Matthew 17, 5. Listen to him. And until Jesus came, Moses would be the greatest prophet ever, Israel had ever seen. But man, when Jesus came, Moses was but a veiled shadow of the greatness of Christ. Jesus Christ is Israel's greatest prophet. His is the voice of redemption, a word that Moses could not truly speak to his people. And 2 Corinthians chapter 2.13 tells us something even more amazing about all this. Paul writes, we are not like Moses. I bet I'm not like Moses. I'm nothing like Moses. Yeah, listen. Who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. For their minds were hardened. Until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains uplifted. Why is it that Jewish people today, for the most part, for the most part, why is it that Israel today remains unconvinced about Jesus? Because today, at the reading of the Old Testament, a veil still sits over them. It blinds them. They can't see it. They can't understand it. To this day, Paul says, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That's how we see. That's how we understand these things. That's why until we get into Christ, we can't understand Christ fully. You have to make that decision of faith. You have to say, man, I'm going to give my life to Him. And it is absolutely amazing how you begin to see, to understand to draw into these things of Jesus. Because Jesus removes the veil. And in Jesus, by the way, the story of Exodus takes on its greater intended meaning. It's not just historical, it's eternal. As we study through Exodus, you've got to keep that in mind. This is an eternal story I'm reading here. This is not something that happened. This is something that is happening. And we will go to a promised land as well. So I believe Jesus is the major character in the book of Exodus. And as we saw, the first major theme of the book is redemption. And the main player, the main person in the book is Jesus. But what about the second theme, or the the third part to our study this morning? The last few chapters of the book, the last 22 chapters of the book. Now we get back to God's new move. Flip in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus 6. As we began this morning, I said that the actual Hebrew title for the book of Exodus is, quote, These are the names, unquote. And I said it's a clue to this new move of God. And we've talked about the plan and the person, now the people. Check this out. Up to this point, and think about this, through Genesis, up to this point in Scripture, God was a God of a person. He was always the God of individuals. He was the God of Abraham. Then he was the God of Isaac. Then he was the God of Jacob. The God of Joseph. 
But in Exodus, the new thing that God's going to do that He had not done up until this point is He now becomes the God of a people. The God of a people. And that's your third fill-in, the people. A revelation. A revelation of who God's people are. A revelation of God's people. Exodus 19 through 40 will show us this revelation of God's people. Now, Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. Follow along with me. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty. That is El Shaddai. El. El. El is the name of God at creation. Genesis chapter 1. That's where God was the creator God. El. The God who created Now listen to what he says, but by my name, Lord, that is Jehovah, I did not make myself known to them. You might just keep this in mind that El is the distant creator God. It's the name of God in power and authority and greatness. Jehovah, that's the name of our personal God who is involved. We talked about this all the way back at the beginning of Genesis. In chapter 1, you see El the creator. Chapter 2, suddenly he's called Lord Jehovah. And this Jehovah God, now you see the intimate creation of Adam and Eve by his own hands, his own fingers. He is involved in their lives. And so right here he says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as God, God Almighty. But my name, Lord, I did not make known to them. They didn't know me. They didn't really know me. I was a God of a person, but not of a people. Not, not of a, I wasn't a known element. He said, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groanings of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. Now listen to this. Draw close to this. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, Jehovah. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you also from their bondage. It's redemption. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then, then, then I will take you for my people. He's never done this before. I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord Yahweh your God El I'm both to you I am both creator God and intimate Father you who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians I will bring you to the land which I swore to give Abraham Isaac and Jacob and I will give it to you for a possession I am the Lord Yahweh The shift here is marvelous in the pages of Scripture. And we begin to understand that God moves slowly across history to explain Himself to us. First, just with creation. Wow, amazing. Then with individuals, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So we can see Him interacting, but then with a people as He stretches His arms even wider. Ultimately, He will stretch His arms wider still. God reveals in the book of Exodus his desire to be connected, not just as God to individuals, but as Lord to a people. And God will have a closeness to Israel in this book, never be foreseen on earth. He will have such an intimacy with them that he literally refers to them later as his wife, even though she's out having affairs with other gods. He will go before them, he will discipline them, he will even pine for them as they rebel against this great relationship, and he will not forget 
that she is the people he called first. Even in the New Testament, Paul says several times, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. To the Jew first. My people. And they say, well, why does this matter to me? I'm not of Israel. I'm not a Jew. I've said over and over, and I will continue to say, God's faithfulness to the Jew is God's faithfulness to you. And we see in the faithfulness He keeps with all of Israel across history, and in the keeping of His promises and His prophecies to Israel, it reminds us of His absolute faithfulness to us. He does not back down. He does not give up on His people. God chose a people, Israel, to save a people, the church, that He might save a company of all people who come to Him in faith. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation forever. Everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now flip in your Bibles to Revelation 21 and we'll finish this morning. Revelation chapter 21. Last book of the Bible. Easiest book to find next to Genesis. Revelation 21 starting in verse 1. And my hope as we read this is that you understand the depth of the love the Father has for His children. Listen to this. Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth pass away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. Tabernacle, the tent, God's dwelling place. It's among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself, God Himself will be among them. And listen, especially if you've had a hard week, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he sits on the throne and says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. Same words that Jesus spoke on the cross in John 19.30. It is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Gang, the revelation of a people in Exodus pictures this revelation. That God, His desire is to have a people. To be a God who lives among a people. Who is with His people. Why is He here right now? Because His people have sinned. Because sin keeps us from God. It divides us from the Father. And until we have the redemption of the blood of Jesus, we cannot draw near to God. Well, I've got the redemption of that blood. Why am I still here? Why am I not at home? Because not everyone has heard. Because we still live in an unredeemed, lost, fallen world. And without taking any time to do it, you and I all can draw to mind... Numbers of people we know who, if Jesus came today, would not go home with him. And that convicts, because I stand before you as one who is a great sinner, but who was greatly redeemed. And when Jesus calls, I'm going. I am out of here. I am on the first flight out. I want you to know. But there was a time in history, there was a time in history when some of Israel did recognize their greatest prophet 
there was a people, a number of Jews, who did recognize their greatest prophet. Acts chapter 2 tells us, in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can begin your own exodus this morning. At any given time in our lives, regardless of how much bondage we are in to sin, you realize God didn't take a, a long series of time to help people get used to not having their bondage. He broke them out and took them. He got them out of there. And that's where we're at today. If you are stuck in the bondage of sin, He wants to pull you out now. Not next week. Not in a few months. Not after you've been kind of getting used to this church thing and, and this, this Bible thing and this Jesus guy. And not after you feel comfortable with your own righteousness. That's the wrong road to take. He wants to pull you out now while you are in bondage. And like the Jews who were in Jerusalem listening to Peter saying, What should we do? He says, Repent. Just turn around. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you have never made the decision to repent, make it today. Begin your exodus today. And let me tell you something else. Because it just hit me. And I think God just tapped me on the shoulder this week and said, Rick, don't forget to tell him about baptism. Because there are among us a number who are not baptized. Will you understand what the Bible, not what Rick says, not what a church ordains, not what someone in history says is what needs to be done. What does the Bible say? Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I encourage you today to make a decision for Christ if you haven't. And if you've made a decision for Jesus, if you're one who has repented, then I encourage you to make that next step. Don't put it off. Don't wait. It's not about men. It's not about churches. It's not about anybody else. It's about you and the Father. And He wants you to be washed. And we've got a great pond out here in which to do it. Lots of room. Let's pray together. Father, I feel like we're on the verge of something huge. And as much as I'd like to say so, it's not the book of Exodus. And it's not the study we're about to embark on, Lord willing. It's the fact that Jesus will call us home. And God, I believe with all my heart that His coming is near. And that we are on the verge of things, that we are in the last days. And that you, Lord, are, are calling to a people across this world to be ready for your coming. To, to open their eyes. To stop playing games. To stop playing church. To stop pretending. And God, to be your people again. I guess to me, Father, the most amazing thing about Exodus and recognizing that you called a people is that you want a people. That you want to draw your family close to you again. And I pray that every single person in the barn here this morning will be part of that family. And I pray that it will spread out in amazing ways. Not just from here, but from among churches all around, the Skagit Valley and Island County and Washington State and America and the entire world, that the church will stand as a family again. And that we will be the people, God, that you've called us to be. God, it's got to start right here. We can't be looking across the waters and, and, and across the states 
oh, we can do that and, and we want to bless mission work, Father, but we've got to act here in this place where you've called us to be. And so I pray that you will begin to move and that you will take us and give us a boldness, Father, maybe we've never had before. That the people who are normally shy, personality-wise, will begin just saying Jesus in their conversations and bringing Jesus to our friends and our family who don't know Him. But Father, even before we can do that, I know there are some who have decisions to make today for you. A decision to repent and for the first time to say, I want to be a part of that family. I want to be your child, God. And if you've never made that decision, it's as simple as asking God to be your father. If you want to make that decision today as we pray, make the decision with me. Just repeat to the Lord in your heart. Dear Father, I am a sinner. I am in bondage to my sin. I have tried, but I cannot be perfect. I cannot be righteous. Nobody can. And so I confess my sin to you, and I ask for your forgiveness, Lord Jesus. I understand that you died on the cross for me, that you gave your life for me, that you took the punishment, Lord, that was mine, and now I just want to take the salvation that you offer by Jesus. Be my Lord and be my Savior today. I believe in Jesus. And if you've prayed that prayer, whether it's this morning or at an earlier time in your life, the next step is to get into the water. Father, will you move us to the water? God, those who have never been baptized, to the waters of baptism, to to reveal to the family and to you their, their incredible desire to be obedient to your call, to act in obedience to the faith that they have in you. Father, for anyone who's already made those steps to to repent and to be baptized, will you still lead us to the water that is Jesus Christ? Help us to drink freely, Father, from your word and from your spirit. And keep doing this work among us, Lord. We're at your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.